So I want to do a quick uh, recap for you over the last few weeks and what's been on my heart and what I want to share today. I've been since the beginning of August sharing about uh, knowing the Holy Spirit and teaching through some of the examples of how we can know him and the importance of knowing him. So this is going to be part four of that. So in case you haven't been here, haven't been able to listen, let me give you just a quick three-minute recap of the last few weeks. At the beginning of this month, I was in Wichita, August 7th, and I preached about knowing who the Holy Spirit is and why we should know who he is, the difference between carnal Christians and spiritual Christians, the two different types, one that escapes through the flames. The carnal Christians have nothing on the foundation. The other one who is rewarded richly for eternity. And we talked, the primary verse there was 1 Corinthians 2, chapter 12. We've received not the spirit of this world, lowercase spirit, but we've received the uppercase spirit who is from God. Why? So that we may know the things that God has freely given us. And that was primarily what we talked about, the spirit who leads us into truth, the spirit of reality. So basically making all that Jesus is in us real to us is what the Holy Spirit does. And then we talked about how C.S. Lewis says, Jesus didn't come just to teach us what we should be, but he came to to make us who he teaches we should be. Well, then the next week on August 15th, I was here and we spoke about knowing the Holy Spirit primarily through praying in the Spirit and the prayer language. Linda gave such a great testimony to that this last week. We talked about the seven uh, facts about praying in tongues in 1 Corinthians chapter 14 and how Paul just so emphasized that. It doesn't make you a super special person, but he just talks about how it's so important and it builds us up and we utter mysteries and there's all these different things. If you hadn't had a chance to listen to that, it's 15, 20 minutes long. It was from August 15th. If you're, if you're seeking more about understanding praying in the Spirit, I'd Highly recommend that. The mind must be unfruitful to pray in the spirit. And that's where the rub is here in Western culture and Christianity is is there is there's a work of letting go in our minds because knowledge puffs up, but love builds up. And so you have to let the spirit pray and your mind doesn't pray. That's a very difficult thing to overcome. It was for me at least and for so many people that I know. That week, Luke was leading worship and I was just weeping down on my knees and I stood up and I said, I saw the spirit brooding over all of you. I love Carl singing that song, the spirit's brooding over the church to, to, to work as the Lord commands, to move quickly. But as a church, as a people, we must say, come in, Holy Spirit, and clean house. Come in and have your way. Expose and reveal and teach me the deeper things of the Lord Jesus. And so then at the very end of that sermon, I asked those, I told you I was praying in the Spirit the night before, and I had three questions. What do you say about the church in El Dorado? Anybody remember what the Holy Spirit said to me? The church in El Dorado, she is mine. Such a good word. She is mine. And I said, what do you want from the church in El Dorado? It's two things. Anybody remember? Oh, yes, 100%. Yeah, you win over here. Somebody wins. Intimacy and abandoned. Uh, Closeness, proximity, walking in relationship with him and complete abandon to the things of the Lord. And lastly, what do you have for the church in Elderate? What's the great gift? And I heard myself. The Lord Jesus is the great gift to his church. Well, then this last week on August 22nd, We talked about knowing the deeper things of God and that little Philemon 6 verse through our fellowship with one to another. As we fellowship in the spirit, 
It says that so that we might know the deeper things, so we might go deeper in our understanding of all the wonderful things that we already have in God. And so knowing the Holy Spirit is knowing the Holy Spirit in spiritual relationships around us. I know more about Christ in me because of y'all and the flavor that you bring. And we talked about how more spirit-led, Jesus-loving relationships in our lives, the better. Paul had tons of them. He was the ultimate Facebook back in the day. He, he was writing at the end of his letters all these dozens of relationships that he had, and I believe he was the better for that. Limited, shallow understanding is caused by limited or shallow revelation of who Jesus is. Well, that's the last three weeks. This week, I want to talk a little bit about some Old Testament stories and how I believe they unpack for us some New Testament realities of who Jesus is, who the Holy Spirit really is, who God the Holy Spirit is in our midst here. Because knowing the Holy Spirit changes us through and through. It's the most practical. Listen, knowing the Holy Spirit can seem like, I heard a pastor say this the other day, sometimes you can focus way too much on the Holy Spirit. Sometimes you can focus too much on certain things. I'm like, I don't understand that because knowing God, the Holy Spirit, again, 1 Corinthians 2.12 helps us to understand all the things we've already been freely given. Don't we want that? Yeah, we want to know all that we've been given and there's no way to get it from here to here and understand that unless the Holy Spirit helps us. So listen, here's just a few benefits of knowing the Holy Spirit. Number one, sonship. You walk in, those who are led by the Spirit of God are the sons of God. As I learn to walk in step with the Spirit, I learn about my identity as a son. Super practical to walk as a son, because if I walk as a slave, I do slave thinking and slave ways of working. If I walk as a son, I'm free, man. I'm free, and the the Lord just flows through me. Number two, if I walk by the Spirit, I stop sinning. The truth is, in Galatians 5, if you walk by the Spirit, you will not gratify the desires of the, it's super practical. When I'm filled with the Spirit and walking by the Spirit, I got no desire to go do that sin. Number three, the Holy Spirit is the power to live the Christian life. You're to dwell in the upper room, you're to wait, you're to tarry until you're endued with power from on high to be my witnesses. You are powerless in your Christian life without the outworking of the Holy Spirit from and through you. Number four, the fruit of the Spirit starts to come through you. Love, joy, peace, patience, kindness, goodness, faithfulness, gentleness, self-control. All that the Holy Spirit is in you, all that Jesus, his perfect life and his nature starts to come through you as you learn to abide in the Spirit. You have a joy-filled life. A spirit of heaviness is lifted, a spirit of despair, and you get the oil of of gladness. You have the actual joy of the Lord within you that is your strength. And then another one is freedom. Where the spirit of the Lord is, there is freedom, absolute freedom. I could list like 25 more. These are just a few. Why it's so important to know the forgotten God. Why it's so important to know the Holy Spirit, the very presence of God that lives inside of me. How important is this? It's the difference between being carnal and and escaping through the flames on judgment day as a Christian and being spiritually minded and having great reward for eternity. I'm telling you, you want to know the Holy Spirit. 
you desperately want to know the Holy Spirit. And the more you know him, the more you want to know him. Knowing God, the Holy Spirit, is the most practical, life-impacting practice needed in the church today. Normal Christianity, spirit-filled, spiritually-minded, maturity. Abnormal Christianity, fleshly-minded, carnally-minded, immaturity. Listen, I, I heard a pastor say this the other day, the Holy Spirit is like the search engine for God. 2 Corinthians, or 1 Corinthians chapter 2, 10 and 11 says, the Spirit searches the things of God. When you do a Google search and you get umpteen million results in 0.05 seconds, the Holy Spirit searches through and through the things of God. You want to know the Lord? Go to the search engine. He is the Holy Spirit. He will reveal God in you and through you and the depths and the wonders of he who is without knowing. The divine search engine, Corey Russell calls him. So you cannot know God unless you know God, the Holy Spirit. It's impossible to know God without knowing the Holy Spirit. And I'll say here in a minute, his book, the book that he wrote for us. So I believe today what I'd like to do is unpack a little of the history of the Lord's presence among his people. And I'd mentioned to you that I want to take some Old Testament stories and lift out some New Testament realities for us. And here's a couple of scriptures for you. Romans chapter 15, if you turn there, verse 4. It tells us why certain things were written down. For everything, Romans 15, for everything that was written in the past, the Old Testament, everything that was written in the past was written to teach us so that through the endurance taught in the scriptures and the encouragement they provide, we might have hope. Everything written in the past was written to teach you and to teach me something. And why? Endurance. It's teaching us endurance that's taught in the scriptures so that we might have encouragement and hope. That's what I'm, hope is, I'm hoping is going to pop out from these stories here to you. And then go to your right to uh, 1 Corinthians chapter 10. 1 Corinthians chapter 10 talks about Israel. It says this, starting in verse 6. Now these things that occurred, these things occurred to Israel as examples to keep us from setting our hearts on the evil that they did. These things happened to Israel. And what are these things? Well, verse 11, these things happen to them as examples and are written down as warnings for us on whom the culmination of the ages has come. These things were the punishments for the sin of idolatry, idolatry sexual immorality, testing Christ and grumbling. Idolatry, sexual immorality, testing Christ and grumbling. Those punishments that happened to the children of Israel, the, the, the chastisements they received, they were written down for us. They happened to them as examples for us and warnings for us on whom the culmination of the ages has come. So it's very important that we don't unhitch ourselves from the Old Testament, as some famous teachers are known for saying. The Old Testament speaks to New Testament realities. And the Lord's going to unpack some of that, I believe, for us today. So, History, the Lord, 
dwelled with Adam and Eve in the garden. Yes, his very presence. He walked with them in the cool of the day in the garden. Well, then we all know what Adam and Eve did and no one can see God and live. So he couldn't do that anymore. So he said, I'm gonna choose a people for myself. And so he gets, he gets Abraham, right? And he's, he's getting the people of God separated uh, unto himself. And then he's telling Moses upon the Exodus, he's saying, this is what I want you to do. I want you to build an ark for me. And we're introduced to it in Exodus chapter 25. And he says, I want you to build an ark because that's where my presence is going. I'm going to meet with you there in that place, the ark of the covenant. And then in Hebrews 9, it tells us what was inside of the ark were the golden jar of manna, Aaron's staff that had budded, and the stone tablets of the covenant. So God says, that's where I'm going to meet with you. I'm going to talk to you, the Ark of the Covenant. Remember, it had the cherubim on top. It had the big mercy seat on the top, a big overlaid gold box that the priest carried. So we're introduced to it in Exodus chapter 25. And God said, that's how I'm going to meet with you. That's how I'm going to speak to you. Well, the result of that is found at the end of Exodus. Uh, You remember that Jesus or, or the Israelites, when they had their when they had a meeting with the Lord, that the entire temple was filled with smoke. Exodus chapter 40, actually. The cloud covered the tent of the meeting and the glory of the Lord filled the tabernacle. Moses could not enter the tent of meeting because the cloud had settled on it and the glory of the Lord filled the tabernacle. So back in the day when the Lord met with his people, it was such an ominous thing. People were afraid to even enter. It says Moses couldn't even enter the tent at Exodus 40 at the very end because the smoke from the Lord filled the tabernacle. People were scared to death because of the presence of the Lord there. Well, then we fast forward to the inheritance of the land. And you remember Joshua sends the priests carrying the ark on their shoulders as they were instructed to. And in Joshua chapter three, they're crossing over the Jordan River. And you remember the priests that were carrying the ark, they had to put their feet in the river. And the ark went before, the presence of the Lord went before the people and the waters parted in the Jordan. And it backed up to a city called Adam. And the ark went in. Well, they kept following the ark and they get to the first big battle, the big city in the promised land. It was called Jericho. And in Jericho, they follow the ark around the wall for seven days. The ark of the Lord leading them. And then they shout with a great shout and all the walls of Jericho come tumbling down. They leaned on the ark. They leaned on, they, they leaned on seeking the Lord's will out and knowing his presence and staying behind his presence, being led forth by peace. Stay with me here. They stayed behind the presence of the Lord. They hid themselves behind that. This was the way that the children of God followed the Lord. They stayed in step behind the presence of the Lord. Well then, over time, go with me to 1 Samuel, the children of Israel got laxed and relaxed about the presence of the Lord. And we're introduced to the first part of Samuel to Eli and his wicked sons, Hophni and Phinehas. And they were the caretakers of the ark. They were minding the store. They had no regard for the presence of the Lord. It was a box to them. It was a relic, a religious thing. And so God rebuked Eli and his evil sons, Hophni and Phinehas, for desecrating the temple with their wickedness, with their evil. They had no regard for the actual presence of the Lord. Well, the Lord, he calls Samuel, 
At that time, and Samuel grows up in 1 Samuel chapter 3 in the presence of the Lord. Verse 2 of 1 Samuel 3 says, One night Eli, whose eyes were becoming so weak he could barely see, was lying down in his usual place. Because there's a usual place where we meet with the Lord in Christianity. It becomes normal for us sometimes. But the lamp of God had not yet gone out. And Samuel was lying down in the house of the Lord where the ark was. He stayed close to the presence of the Lord. Well, then right after that, the Philistines attack the children of Israel in chapter 4 of 1 Samuel. And there's a great rumbling in the earth because the ark of the Lord comes into the camp of Israel and they say, let's get the ark in front of us. Let's do what worked in the past and let's get the ark in front of us again, the presence of the Lord. But what happened was the Lord was not with them in that battle. And 30,000 Israelites died. 30,000 soldiers died. And the ark was captured. If the ark of the Lord could ever be captured, there's no such thing as that. But the Lord allowed the Philistines to take the ark into their land. So it moved from Shiloh, where it was with Samuel. And through this battle, the presence of the Lord got taken over by the world system. And the Philistines, because of the wickedness of Hophni and Phinehas and Eli, the Philistines, the world system, took over the presence of the Lord. You remember Phinehas's wife had a baby and his name was Ichabod. And as the Philistines took the ark, she was dying and she said, the glory of the Lord has departed Israel. And I'm here to tell you that the glory of the Lord, the presence of the Lord has largely departed his church in America. And it's been adopted by the world system. And we have intermarried with the world. And it's a dark time for the church, and it has been for some time right now. The glory of the Lord has departed his people Israel. There's no fear of the Lord in the church anymore. The presence of the Lord no longer goes before us. The best ideas and and the best wisdom of man and the best organized services, that's all the rage and it's all in front, but the presence of the Lord is nowhere to be found. We can do so much without the presence of the Holy Spirit in church now. Well, the Philistines captured the ark and in chapter 5 of 1 Samuel, they take it to Ashdod and they carried it into their god Dagon's temple, which is just a funny story. I'd love to see the video on this someday. The ark of the Lord goes into Dagon's temple. They come in the next morning. He's on his face before the ark. They come back in. They set him up. He's on his face again. But I believe at that time, his hands were broken off. The third time he's fallen down, his head is severed and his hands are severed. They said, No bueno, let's get rid of this. We don't want the Ark of the Lord here. Let's ship it off to a different town. Well, they ship it to a different town. The Philistines do, and they get tumors in that town. And then they're overcome by rats, and they got it for seven months, the number of completion. They're like, we're done with this thing. Let's get it back to where it came from. Let's get it out of Philistine land, and they put it on a cart. And they ship it back to Israel. In chapter six of 1 Samuel, In verse 13, it comes to Beth Shemesh. And the people of Beth Shemesh were harvesting their wheat in the valley. And when they looked up and saw the ark, they rejoiced at this sight. They sacrificed the cattle, the oxen that were pulling the ark. And they rejoiced. The ark returned when? During what season did the presence of the Lord return back to the people of God? The harvest. So I tell you, as we see the presence of the Lord returning to the church, you can be doubly sure that harvest is upon us right now. The presence of the Lord is returning during a time of harvest, but 
It was not yet fully realized. There were some things that had to be worked out and worked through. Well, the people of Beth Shemesh didn't understand what the Lord had written about the ark back in Exodus. And so it says that they looked inside of the ark of the covenant. Don't think Indiana Jones because that's not really what happened, but it's kind of like what happened. But they, they took a peek inside, which was expressly forbidden in the Old Testament, and 70 people died. 50 liters of men plus 20, 70 people died immediately when they looked inside. They were scared to death. So what do they do with the ark? First Samuel 7, 1. They brought it to Abinadab's house on the hill, and they consecrated Eleazar, his son, to guard the ark of the Lord. The ark remained at Kirith-Jerim for a long time, 20 years in all. Now, I'm taking you on this story from the ark at the beginning in the presence of the Lord and we're going to end up here somewhere in just a minute, but I'm taking you on this story because I believe it resembles what's happened in the church universal, especially in the church in America and what's coming for us. So here we have the ark sitting at Abinadab's house. After the Israelites just ransacked, they were ransacked by the Philistines. The Philistines captured it. 30,000 people died. They're scared to death. The tumors, the rats and Philistines, they come back, 70 people of Israel died. They were scared. And they said, just put it in this guy's Abinadab's house and let's guard it. We know the presence of the Lord is powerful, but we don't know what to do with it. So it sat there for 20 years. Who was king during those 20 years? Saul. Saul was king. What did Saul do with the ark? Nothing. Don't need the ark. I do not need to inquire of the presence of the Lord. I'm tall. I'm handsome, I'm strong, I use might and power, but I do not need the spirit of the Lord. And God had no place for Saul. And I tell you, Saul in the church is dying right now. The leadership of Saul in the church is dying right now. And he's raising up shepherds, men after his heart. He's raising up Davids. He's raising up people passionate for his name. And they're passionate for his presence. It's changing even right now in the church, I'm telling you. There is no need to inquire of the presence of the Lord before during the reign of Saul for 20 years, but now there's this need. So 1 Samuel 6 and 7, go to 2 Samuel chapter 6. 2 Samuel chapter 6, David, as opposed to being conquered by the Philistines, has just beaten the Philistines in, first, in 2 Samuel chapter 5. And we're, I want to read with you through chapter 6 here. I'm going to get some good word in you today. If you haven't read much in the last couple of days, you're getting ready to get some in you. But before we do that, leave your finger there. And we're going to look at the First Chronicles 13 example of this story. And David says this in First Chronicles chapter 13, when they're bringing back the ark, it's the same story of 1 Samuel chapter 6. David's just defeated the Philistines and he says this. 1 Chronicles 13.3, let us bring the ark of our God back to us, for we did not inquire of it during the reign of Saul. The whole assembly agreed to do this because it seemed right to all the people. So you have David as the new leader of the people of God, and he's saying, you know what? We've ignored the ark too long. Let's bring it back to us. We didn't inquire of the Lord. Now it's time. Now it's time for the presence of the Lord to be back in the center of the worship of the Lord in Jerusalem. It's been on the house in the hill for too long, Abinadab. It's time to bring it to the center place of worship, the very presence of the Lord. 
The people said, yes, that's right, but we're not quite there yet. There are still problems ahead. 2 Samuel 6, please stay with me. Don't check out because we're reading scripture. Hang in here with me. David again brought together all the able young men of Israel, 30,000. How many people died before in 1 Samuel? And he's bringing back 30,000 men now. He and all of his men went to Kirith-Jerim, or Bela in Judah, to bring up from there the ark of God, which is called by the name, the name of the Lord Almighty, who is enthroned between the cherubim and the ark. They go to Abinadab's house. They march up there, 12 miles. They march up there to his house, 30,000 men. And it says later, all of Israel with them. Maybe picture a couple hundred thousand people. Can you imagine a 12-mile march with all these people? And they set the ark of God on a new cart because they were taught by the world to do this. They had good intentions to get the presence of the Lord back, but they did it the way the world did it, on the new cart like the Philistines did. I wonder if they had, by the way, a new cart fund. And people donated for the new cart so they could put their name on a plaque on the side. Good intentions mean nothing to the Lord without his spirit. And they brought it from the house of Abinadab, which was on the hill. Uzzah and Ahio, the sons of Abinadab. Now, Eleazar was his oldest son, and he had Uzzah, and he had Ahio. Ahio. They were guiding the new cart with the ark of God on it, and Ahio, who was walking in front of it. And David and all Israel were celebrating with all their might before the Lord, with castanets and harps and lyres and timbrels and sistrums and cymbals. He probably wrote Psalm 68 here. Imagine with me, just take it, take it a holy imagination trip with me and imagine a couple hundred thousand people, 30,000 soldiers, and everyone freaking out as the ark is being carried on this cart pulled by oxen back 12 miles to Jerusalem. Imagine the exuberance. Finally, we're getting the presence of the Lord back. I can almost feel it right now. But it was all wrong. When they came to the threshing floor of Nacon, Uzzah reached out and took a hold of the ark of God because the oxen stumbled. The Lord's anger burned against Uzzah because of his irreverent act, because according to Numbers 4.15, he was never supposed to touch it. Only the priests could touch it. They were supposed to carry it. Therefore, God struck him down and he died there beside the ark of God. You think that's rude and crude of the Lord to put him to death? Don't forget the 70 guys that died just from looking into the ark. There's no messing around here. Then David was angry because the Lord's wrath had broken out against Uzzah. And this day, the place is called Perez Uzzah. David was afraid of the Lord that day and said, how can the ark of the Lord ever come to me? And he was not willing to take the ark of the Lord to be with him in the city of David. Instead, he took it to the house of Obed-Edom, the Gittite. He was a Gentile. He was from Gath, the David's favorite giant city. He was a Gentile and he parks it at his house. David was afraid like everyone else. And the ark of the Lord remained in the house of Obed-Edom, the Gittite, for three months. And the Lord blessed him and his entire household. Now, King David was told, the Lord has blessed the household of Obed-Edom and everything he has because of the ark of God. So David went up to bring the ark of God from the house of Obed-Edom to the city of David with rejoicing. What did he do during that three months? What did he go study? Anybody know? The Bible, the scriptures. And he found out through looking in Exodus, according to Moses, only the priests are to carry the ark on their shoulders. Now, the ark was heavy probably 565 pounds-ish. It was hard to carry. That was, a, that was a hard 
journey for 12 miles to carry that. It was easier to go the world's way, but it cost them something. So David said, no, this is the way we're going to do it. He read his scriptures and he understand the Lord's way now. When those, verse 13, who were carrying the ark of the Lord had taken six steps, he sacrificed a bull and a fattened calf. Imagine with me. Now, we don't know exactly how far Obed-Edom's house. Maybe it was only six miles. But even if it was six miles, six steps, and you're sacrificing two large animals, a bull and a fattened calf, a lot of blood on the way for the presence of the Lord to return. A lot of cost, a lot of time, a lot of time. Every six steps for miles and miles and miles and miles and miles. How long? I don't know how long it took. It wasn't a day. Wearing a linen ephod, David was dancing before the Lord with all of his might, while he and all Israel were bringing up the ark of the Lord with shouts and sounds of trumpets. The shouts were okay, but the first time around, they were zeal without knowledge. Now they had knowledge because of the scriptures. And as the ark of the Lord was entering the city of David, Michael, the daughter of Saul, who was given to David as a snare, as a wife for him, she watched from a window, from a high place. She was judging him, looking down her nose literally at him. And when she saw King David leaping and dancing before the Lord, she despised him in her heart. They brought the ark of the Lord and set it in its place, in the place that David had pitched for it, and David sacrificed burnt offerings. He gave everybody in the camp a bunch of gifts. Right after that, he returned home in verse 20 to bless the household. And Michael, his wife, came to him and said, How the king of Israel has distinguished himself today, going around half naked, in full view of the slave girls, of his servants, as any vulgar fellow would. And David says to Michael, it was before the Lord who chose me rather than your father, because she was speaking from the spirit of her father, Saul, or anyone in his house whom he appointed me ruler over people of Israel. I will celebrate more before the Lord. I will become even more undignified than this, and I will be humiliated in my own eyes. But by those slave girls you spoke of, I will be held in honor. And Michael, the daughter of Saul, had no children to the day of her death. Let me see if I can wrap this up here with a few points from this story that the Lord has had on my heart for a couple of weeks now. Uzzah was the, uh, the son of Abinadab, who was the priest in Saul's day that was put there to guard the ark. No real reverence for the spirit of the Lord there, but Uzzah means the strength or my own strength. And Uzzah was using his arm of the flesh to help secure the ark to keep it from stumbling. He was helping the Lord out. David, in the meantime, had this really good intention of getting the ark back to the center place of worship, but he had a zeal without knowledge. And so Uzzah, when he tried to steady the ark, he was doing so because he had familiarity, but no fear. For 20 years, he had been raised as the caretaker of this ark. But number one, his response to the presence of the Lord coming back was familiarity without fear. He had lost his fear. He was living in cheap grace at this point. Anything will go. Because I've been so used to it for so long, I can touch that thing that the Lord never told me to touch. The result of familiarity without fear is spiritual death immediately. On the flip side of that, you have Michael. And when the presence of the Lord is returning to Jerusalem, she had condescension. And she had become a control freak. 
And she was very concerned with outward appearance and that everything fit inside her nice religious box and her husband handled himself the way he should have handled himself in front of others. And she made it her business to judge his actions. She was self-righteous and she was condescending of someone else's freedom. It's a little bit like what Austin just said today. Looking down from her window. Well, the result of that is spiritual barrenness. Micah had no children. Michael had no children. You have spiritual death from irreverence and familiarity and no fear. And you have spiritual barrenness and no fruit that comes from condescending thoughts towards people who have freedom in the Lord that you don't have. Instead of having it spur you on to jealousy. Well, then there's a third response. And I'm praying this for me and I'm praying this for us. You have David who had learned the prescribed way to do it through the scriptures. He got his nose in the Bible for three months and he understood the value and the importance of the presence of God, but he also understood it's not a free-for-all. The Lord has ways. The children of Israel knew his acts, but Moses knew his ways. And he wants us to know the ways of the Lord and how his presence is revealed. And so then, he, because of knowing his word, he wanted to dwell in his presence with rejoicing and gladness, with the fear that is his due. Every six steps, he stopped because he feared the Lord and he sacrificed. He was slow in his timing and he followed the ark into Jerusalem. We're led forth by peace. So, the presence of the Lord requires a fear of the Lord which results in life. It requires no self-righteous condemnation, no offense towards others, and that produces fruitfulness and not barrenness. It requires cost, time, time, time in the presence of the Lord, and sacrifice, a bowl and a calf. It requires praise, and not just praise, but true worship, loud shouts of acclamation, leaping and dancing, and it requires knowing the word that lights up our path. Knowing the prescribed way as Moses had commanded it. So, practically, as I end here, where did the ark go? Well, we think it was either carried off and Babylon came and ransacked Israel or it was hidden. The Israelites hid it somewhere. We don't know where the physical ark is. We see it in Revelation chapter 11. It shows up there. The ark of God is revealed at the seventh trumpet. It's beautiful. So one way or the other, it ends up in heaven. But where did the ark go, everybody? Right here. We, now as the church, are the carriers of the presence of the Lord. But if, as I said a couple weeks ago, if the presence of the Lord does not go before us, what differentiates us from any other people on the earth? Nothing. Nothing separates us. We're like any other club out there unless the presence of the Lord goes before us. And the, if the presence of the Lord does not affect our lives, it's a good idea to push pause on everything until we know the Holy Spirit and know his presence in a powerful way. The ground is meant to shake every time the church takes a step. Every time the church moves, the gates of hell shake, the ground shakes. That's not happening today. And it's because the ark of God has been regulated to a 
a religious thing. It's regulated to a box. It's, it's something that we look at, the presence of the Lord, but we don't really experience much. And the Lord says, come in deeper. Come with me. I've got more for you here. Don't you know who you are, Paul says. You're the carriers of the very presence of God. The Holy Spirit leads us into all truth and all reality. Don't forget that we might know the things that we've been freely given by him. The Holy Spirit helps unpack that. The Old Testament stories that teach us, they warn us, they give us instruction, they give us examples of the God who is the same yesterday, today, and forever. He never changes. His presence is just as potent and powerful now as it was back then. But the question for you today is how do you steward the presence of God in your life? Do you identify with Michael and when people dance and laugh and shout for joy and have expressions in the spirit, you secretly judge them because they're not as reserved? Or you do identify with Uzzah, who because of all your familiarity with it, there's cheap grace. And you can, I know the Lord, he's in me. I can look, I can touch, I can do this. And his grace is free. And so I can, no, grace is not a license to sin. There's fear of the Lord. And it purifies us. And it changes us from the inside out. We are carriers of his presence. So I'm pleading with you guys to know the Holy Spirit. What does time look like for you in the Lord's presence? I did this just, just this week. Sometimes just to sit there and to pray in the Spirit or just to sit there and abide and cast the eyes of your heart on him. Can we practice just for a moment, if you would? Can you practice with me? If you feel like closing your eyes, close your eyes. Just even right now. His presence here with us. Just to lift the eyes of your heart. Say, Holy Spirit, reveal Christ in me in a deeper way. Jesus, I love you. Just rest here for just a moment here. Just cast your eyes on him. You know, when you begin to pray more, you want to pray more. When you begin to rest in the presence of the Lord more, do you want it more? I'm over time here, but give me three more minutes. Just three more. Obed-Edom, the Gentile, like you and me, he got the ark at his house for three months. Well, then David comes up and he takes the ark to Jerusalem. Where did Obed-Edom go? He followed the ark. And all of his 68 sons and grandsons and all the company of his house, he didn't stay where he was. He moved. He moved. He followed the ark. You know what he became? First Chronicles 15 tells us he became a doorkeeper in the house of God. You know what that makes me think of? Better is one day in your courts than a thousand elsewhere. 
I would rather be a doorkeeper in the house of my God than dwell in the tents of the wicked. Why? Why did Obed-Edom do that? Why did he follow the presence? He'd soaked it up for 90 days. That was it. The other guy had it for 20 years. Obed-Edom soaked up the presence for 90 days. Why did he move? What's the payoff? And it says, for the Lord God is a son and a shield. The Lord bestows favor and honor. No good thing does he withhold from those whose walk is blameless. Lord Almighty, blessed is the one who trusts in you. It says before this, blessed are those who dwell in your house. They're ever praising you. The more exposed you are to the presence of the Lord, the more you want it. It's that drug that's a good drug that keeps giving. It's the well that never runs dry. It's what you were made for. It's what I was made for. We're getting ready to spend a lot of time in the presence of the Lord with the angels bursting with joy and delight like we've never experienced here, even a fraction of a taste. We're made for this. Would you press in this week with me into the presence of the Lord and just rest and let the Lord speak into your heart? Would you be like Samuel? He rested by the ark. That's where he stayed. You can be close to it and not close to it. Like Eli, he slept in his usual place. His sons, they were close to it, but they were not close. We want to be people whose hearts are touched. These babies, these young ones here, touched by the presence of the Lord. We want to know the Holy Spirit. So stand with me if you would. Lord, I pray a blessing over all of these saints here today that we could go deeper. I pray, Lord, a deeper understanding of all we have in Christ. I pray even now, Lord, that you would mark hearts. Mark our hearts, Lord, with a desire as the deer pants for streams of water that our souls would pant for you, Lord in your very presence. So I pray for your help, Lord. All the distraction that comes against this, Lord, I pray for your help to see and to know what we already have in Christ. Holy Spirit, help us. Open our eyes. Unpack the wonderful things you've given to us.